We're going to take the next four weeks to just pause our usual practice. And our usual practice is to just work through books of the Bible and the things that the Lord desires to um, instruct us in very broadly and generally. We try not and be guided by, prompted by the issues of our times. What we're about to do is not normal, and it should stay that way. If I ever come off to you regularly and consistently as just a, a pundit who has a platform and uses it to harp on his own issues, you should find another church. Okay. We believe that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in the word, and we believe the best way to discover those things is to study it together and move through it and trust everything else to his sovereignty. However, my role is also not just as a teacher of the Bible, but as a pastor. And as a pastor, that means I have direct responsibility and concern for us as a congregation and how we live our life before the Lord. And so this series is in response, not just to the events of, of this month or even the events of the last four years, but maybe the events of the last 40 years, or maybe we need to go back 200. I don't know. But I have been stirred to recognize the warning that Moses lays out in Deuteronomy when before they enter into the land of Israel, he says, beware. He says, beware lest any root spring up and bear poisonous and bitter fruit in your midst. And my concern is not um, anything beyond where things may be growing in our hearts and in our church and in the broader evangelical church of America that don't belong. And I think we as a nation, we as a church, we as a community, I think the taste in our mouth right now is poison and it is bitter. And I think we need to search. I think we need to discover. But I want to say um, a few things before we get started. Um, the, you know what, I think I've pretty much actually covered the things I want to lay out. So let me just lay out the contours of where, where I think we're going to go in the next four weeks. I want to talk about four different areas that have become primary in American culture, primary in modern times, and primary in the way that we go about uh, being the church in America um, that I think move against the grain of the very heart of who we are as the people of God. And so I want to talk about power this morning. Next week, I want to talk about the concept of freedom. Then I want to talk about hatred. And finally, I want to talk about truth, lies, and deception, okay? Those are the areas that I want to address over the next few weeks. But I want to remind you that as we are looking at these things, and at least for me personally, I am an evangelical. I owe my relationship to Jesus, to the church that I have called home, American Christianity, for the last 20 years. This is not my desire to distance myself from, reject, or even rebuke this movement. This is me. This is my family. With that in mind, though, with that in mind, there is always the need to search within, to study the scriptures, to recognize that the church has a tendency to drift. We sing it in our songs, don't we? 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Don't ever forget that that's a communal reality as well. That's why the reformers like Martin Luther and, um, and John Calvin declared that we need to be in Latin, sefer, semper reformata, always reforming. The church's uh, life is one of continuous repentance, Martin Luther said. And so as, he, as we explore these issues, that is the goal. And this morning I want to talk about the will to power. Now before I tell you which passage we're going to turn to, let's just recognize this morning that there's not necessarily an ideal key passage to address our situation where we live in a representative democracy, where Christianity has been a primary and significant part of the history of our nation, and where we're now being faced with how to live in that midst. And so the passage we're going to turn to is not going to address our issues directly, but it is going to address a similar issue. And we're going to use that into a door to uh, the issue at hand. And so if you would open up to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel, especially those in the southern kingdom of Judah, who are feeling the heat of a growing empire known as Assyria. In fact, just a few years after this passage is written, Assyria is going to sweep in and swallow the ten northern tribes. Just completely decimate them and remove them from the land. And not only that, but they're going to attack Judah and do so successfully that Judah will be reduced like helms deep, okay? Like uh, Lord of the Rings style, reduced down to just the walled city of Jerusalem, and it looks like there's an end of things, okay? And all of this is relatively visible to the people of Israel. They're thinking about it. They're living in it. They're reading it in the morning newspaper. They're totally aware of what's coming, and they're trying to ask answer the question, what are we going to do? Isaiah is responding to the most popular and common answer and warning them that they're about to make a tremendous mistake. Read with me in Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers, against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Let's pray. God, to the best of our ability, and even with the help of your spirit, we want to open yourself, open ourselves up to your voice and your leading. We want to be able to hear your perspective and your opinion on our times. And as much as that is the case, Lord, I pray that you would restrain my own opinions and that you would help us to set aside our own forms of self-defense, that we would think on who you are and what you've called us to. 
that we would search our hearts. And in fact, we ask you to search our hearts this morning, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important that we understand what's going on in this passage. Israel is starting to consider a political alliance with the people of Egypt. Because, like I said, there is this looming threat from the nation of Assyria. Okay. And yet, Isaiah jumps in and he says, Woe to those who would choose this route. He speaks strongly. He pushes back against it. And because Egypt is such a main character in the Bible, it's really easy to miss why. The issue at hand is not that Israel is choosing an evil alliance. It's that it's choosing a human alliance. Right? The issue that's stated here is what Egyptians, those slave owners, Egyptians, those people who enslaved you for years, that's not the issue. It's not even what Egyptians, those pagans who worship, you know, the gods of the Nile and the god of the sun and don't know Yahweh, that's not the issue either. What does he say here? He says that uh, they turn to Egypt, why? Because they rely on horses and trust in chariots. And when he critiques and he says, this isn't going to work, it's a mistake, he says in verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Now, side note, despite their desire to make this alliance, Egypt will fall to Assyria. And despite their desire to make this alliance, God still shows up for Israel and he protects and preserves. You may remember that when Assyria does surround Jerusalem, God miraculously, in the hand of an angel, wipes out the enemy army at their gates and when the morning has come, the battle is over. The issue is one of human solutions versus divine. Okay? Now, like I said, the distance between us and this is pretty significant. We are not the nation of Israel. We are not reading this passage this morning as a nation that belongs to God, called by God, to serve God, who represents him, who is in covenant with him. We are reading this as Christians, part of the new covenant, who make up his church, a church that is global and scattered throughout the nations and carries a message. But my fear is that we face a similar danger today. To take something that is man-made, and not evil, that's not the issue, but man-made, and rely on it wholly and totally for our salvation. When I saw pictures at the Capitol of people who were present on January 6th with signs that said Jesus saves, the issue for me was not that these were people who were engaging and, and participating in American democracy. In fact, my issue was not uh, that they were somehow tied or connected to what happened next. Okay. My issue is not that they were there to contest an election that they disagreed with. My issue is that their signs did not match their clear beliefs. It would have been the same as if Israel had sent an embassy down to Egypt 
and carrying with them signs that say Yahweh saves. That's my concern. The problem that I'd like to present to you this morning is not that political side A or political side B is the wrong solution. It's that we have elevated and overvaluated politics as if it were God. Now, like all things that we elevate to status that only God should have, we only do that with good things. If you remember back, if you can remember before COVID, we did a politics series two Novembers ago. And one of the things that I tried to emphasize is that the Bible teaches that government is a limited good. Not a necessary evil, a limited good that was God-given and God-designed for a good purpose. Okay? And we see this in Genesis chapter 9, and it's what Paul maintains in Romans 13, that government is a servant of God and that it does not bear the sword in vain. Okay? We should maintain that posture, posture. We should recognize that that's the truth. The honest truth is soldiers and chariots fall into the same category in this passage. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. In fact, a lot of times when God does bring deliverance to Israel, he uses armies. Sometimes he even uses enemy armies. Okay. But the issue at hand is that in our day and age, Government and politics has increasingly grown too big for its britches. We've magnified it and elevated it in a way that doesn't work. And here's how it's played out over the last 40, 50 years. Okay. Increasingly in our time, I'm sure you've noticed, people disagree on what the good life is, on what primary values are what the major truths of the meaning of life are, okay? That's relatively new. That's relatively different than most places and most times in the history of the world, okay? But now we live in a time where there is a pluralism, where there is an extension of these beliefs that are growing. And what has happened coinciding to that is that whereas politics used to play a small part in the reality, because we had so much we agreed upon, suddenly it's become a way to, um, way to protect and promote our way of life. Okay? In other words, there's an inherent civil war in modern politics because we live in a world divided. Okay? This is why over the last 40 or 50 years, Everything has become politicized. Okay. Every milkmaker has a lobbyist. Every artist studio wants to be represented, right? Every community wants a political voice. But the problem is twofold. One, there's a lot of things government does poorly. And not because government is dumb or misled or mismanaged or anything. It's because it's just one thing. Okay, and so a lot of times, and we've experienced this, haven't we? We try and promote top-down political solutions, 
and it's the unseen factors and consequences that cause everything. It's a large, clumsy tool. Okay. We face this all the time. But more importantly, the reason why government exists, according to Romans 13, the unique element, the unique aspect of why it exists can be defined effectively as coercion. Okay. Government exists so that there's some sort of authoritative restraint against the will of people. And again, that is good. That's what the Romans mean when it references the sword. Okay? It is to limit evil and promote good, as Peter says. And it uses not persuasion, not education, but coercion to do so. And again, in its most limited fashion, that's good. We need someone who is agreed upon, who will maintain order, who will promote laws, who will punish evil, and who will limit injustice. And clearly, from beginning to end, the Bible calls governments to pursue justice. So far, so good. But what has happened is, as there's been a diversity of opinions, we have relied more and more on coercion to create a world in our image. Whatever party we are, whatever values we are, whatever thing we are, the way that we believe that we will bring about goodness, life, human flourishing is through the imposition of our opinions on the wills of others. Now, this is not my idea. This is a growing understanding of sociologists who are looking at what's happened to politics and the things that are unique about our times. And I'd like to read to you from a sociologist by the name of um, Josiah David Hunter. And I just want to ask you as I read this to see how familiar this sounds. I'm not going to try and convince you of this truth. You already know it. Listen, when one boils it all down, politicization means that the final arbiter or judge within most of social life is the coercive power of the state. When politicization is oriented towards furthering the specific interests of the group without an appeal to the common weal, when its mean of, means of mobilizing the uncommitted is through fear, and when the pursuit of agendas depends more on the vilification of opponents than on the affirmation of higher ideals, power is stripped to its most elemental forms. Even democratic justifications, meaning this is the majority view, even democratic justifications are not much more than a veneer over a will to power. The actions themselves may be within the bounds of legitimate democratic participation, yet the basic intent and desire is to dominate, to control, or to rule. Okay. That is the problem. The problem is that government has one tool. We call it the sword. And we have now become a culture that reaches for that sword whenever we can because we're afraid of and resistant to those on the other side, and we seek to change them, change our security, create the world in our image through being the one who wields the sword. 
You may have recognized that little phrase in Hunter's words here. It's also the phrase that gave the title to our sermon, The Will to Power. It comes from the mind of Friedrich Nietzsche, who believed that ultimately what drives the world and what we should aspire to is our ability to impose our desires on our environment around us, including other people. That's what it meant to be human for Nietzsche. Now the problem with this is not only because it intentionally divides, not only because it intentionally um, creates a power struggle, but also because many facets of this are incompatible with what we believe as Christians. Again, what Israel looks at in turning to Egypt, that is world standard advice for somebody who's facing a larger power, right? You know this. If there's some big scary power, the best way to protect yourself is to align yourself with other smaller powers so that you're better protected together. So that even if your defenses are overwhelmed, another will come to your defense. This is normal and natural and standard. But Israel is not normal. And it is definitely not natural. And it's to be a completely different type of standard. Now again, my concern for us is not to critique the state of American politics. My concern is for where these things have become the state of Christian living. I don't know if what I'm about to read you is familiar. In fact, the speech that I'm drawing this quotation from is known for another reason. In January 2016 in Sioux Center, Iowa, way back then, Trump gave a speech presenting himself as a candidate for president. And in the midst of that, this is what the speech is known for, with great hubris he declared that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not be arrested. But I want to draw your attention to something else that he said. He says this. He says, I will tell you, Christianity is under tremendous siege. Whether we want to talk about it or we don't want to talk about it, Christians make up the overwhelming majority of the country, he said, and yet we don't exert the power that we should have. Christianity will have power if I'm there. You're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Remember that. Now listen. That Trump said that does not mean that's why everybody voted for him. But we all know that Trump only says things that connect. He makes an invitation there, and it's the right invitation. It's the one that people are looking for. It is the promise of power. And you don't have to start in January 2016 to see this in the evangelical church. And this is, by the way, not just an issue for the religious right, but also for the religious left. As long as evangelical Christianity has been involved in politics, it's been get out the vote. It's been activate. It's been make our voices heard. Okay. But we have done it in this heavily skewed and corrupted construct 
that primarily relies on coercion to get stuff done. And I think probably, if you look close enough, you would find that that's not something we stumbled into, but somehow we're involved in cultivating ourselves. But the problem, the problem is when we go that route, it doesn't merely attempt to change the world, it changes us. And this is always true of idolatry. Anytime we take something good in life and we make it primary, and the sole way that things get done, anytime we elevate something and we say, this is what we need to make the good life, or this is what, what we must protect so life is worth living, or these types of things. You want to know how I know that politics has become an idol in the U.S.? Look at the fear when things go poorly. This is the issue at hand. And my concern this morning as a pastor is the problems that have been created by this circumstance. First and foremost, because it's made us functional Nietzscheans who believe that the way to bring about our will and oftentimes God's will is through coercion. We think that the way that we're going to bring about justice or the kingdom of God, or preserve our moral heritage, or whatever it is, is primarily through strength. And let me remind you, and Nietzsche understood this too, that anyone who uses power uses it with internal justification. Well, yeah, but we should be in power because we're more righteous, or we're smarter, or, you know, or we're whatever, or God is on our side, or what have you. But the question we have to ask ourselves as a church is two, twofold. One, is that how God works? And two, is that what the church is called to? Let me give you an example. By design, the church is not a nation. Israel, the Old Covenant, that involved a nation, kings, politicians, laws, these types of things. The church is something new. Whereas government was given the sword, the church was never given a sword. Right? When Peter took the sword, Jesus made him put it away. Those who live by the sword, he said, die by the sword. But he did give us a tool. The New Testament calls it the keys. Okay? The keys to the kingdom the ones that he brings up when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The one he brings up when in Matthew 18, he talks about the passage of, of church discipline. These are two different tools for two different groups. The sword is a tool of coercion. The keys are a tool of proclamation. They're different. But I want you to notice what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 10, he talks about how we function as a church, the tools, the implements, the resources we have at hand. And I think you could make a direct connection between what we're about to read and what we read in Isaiah. Isaiah said they trust in man and not the Spirit of God. Listen to his words here. He says, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh... 
we are not waging war according to the flesh. Let me change it for you because flesh here isn't just about the body. Though we walk in our culture, we are not waging war according to our culture. Okay? The place is the same. The resources are different. This is what he says. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now listen, just a couple of things so that we wrap our head around this rightly. First, here Paul talks not about power and weakness, but power and power. The power of the flesh and the weapons of the flesh and the power of the spirit and the weapons of the spirit. So this is not a call to lay down our arms in any sense. In fact, all the language Paul uses here is combat language. Did you notice? It's wrestling and warfare and battle and enemies. Paul doesn't seem bothered by that language. But what is it? How is it that the battle is won here? Listen to it again. He says this. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See where the argument is here? Paul is not merely saying the pen is mightier than the sword, but that's a lot closer than him saying the sword is the sword. What he's saying here is that we persuade. Right? Arguments, opinions, knowledge, and thoughts. That is the realm. In other words, Paul recognizes that there is an ideological warfare. And not only that, but he recognizes that we have something powerful to win in that place. Christians aren't given the sword, but they are given a proclamation, a message, an understanding of life and the life to come. And Paul here is not bothered by the weakness of those weapons. He says they are powerful in the pulling down of strongholds. Persuasion is the primary tool of Christian ministry. Why am I doing this right now? Instead of pulling your arm behind your back and saying, stop behaving like this. Because Paul rightly recognizes that the battle out here involves a deeper battle right here. But that does not mean a lessening of power. And that's the worst part about what we've experienced in the church is that because we've over-elevated the power of politics, we've under-elevated our own resources. We've diminished what God has actually given us, which is truly powerful. Secondly, a problem with us relying on this, you know, enhanced reality of politics is that it's reduced our witness as Christians to primarily a political witness. And we've done this internally. We've said, you're not a faithful representative of Christ unless you get out the vote. But we've also succeeded in changing our reputation externally. What are we as Christians known for? 
What are we defined by? How are we recognized? We are recognized politically. At the very best, we have taught the world that we are reliant on these worldly powers for the success of our mission. At the very least, we've said that we are just another interest group who has the same means and tools to accomplish their interests. But more than that, we are not defined as sometimes our ancestors like to put it as value voters, but primarily about who we are against and our imposition of our will upon others. That defines the Christian witness. And you may say, well, that's not a fair understanding. I would challenge that. But even if you want to hold that, the whole purpose of a witness is to testify to an audience so they truly see and truly hear. At the very least, we should recognize the message isn't getting across. And at worst, we've become a divine justification for a preferred political ideology. I don't know if you know this, but some in the Republican Party have referred to the evangelical church as the useful idiot. Now, I know that's not how, you know, the founders of the religious right thought of themselves. They thought of themselves as the sleeping giant. But the useful idiot is the one that you stir up to get stuff done. And to be honest, it's been the same for the Christian left. Before Obama... The American left had no outreach to faith communities. And in 2007, leading up to the election, they realized if we're going to win this and get into power, we're going to need Christians. And so they started a whole campaign to engage on issues of faith, to no longer come off as strictly secularists, and to take back faith from the right. And the church often has just embraced and endorsed these things. But listen, it doesn't matter if right now you look at the government that is and you compare it more to the servant of God of, Revelation, or of Romans 13 or the beast of Revelation 13. It doesn't matter if you see it primarily as a way to get something done or the greatest destroyer of good things. Neither will the servant bring about the kingdom, nor will the beast destroy it. This is what we have forgotten as Christians. And I know most of you didn't vote for Trump. I know most of you would consider yourselves progressives and left-leaning. The danger is the same. The kingdom of God is more than just the utopian dream of the left that believes through proper legislation we can bring about peace on earth. Even when we agree with others, we agree with different reasons and we appeal to different resources. If we don't, then we lose our prophetic voice. We no longer have anything to say. We can no longer stand on the outside and critique. We can no longer invite to another way. And that's the biggest issue. Politics has gotten into the American church to the degree that it has caused us to forsake our true calling. Isaiah doesn't give a vision for the church. Not in this sense. Not on how to live. Not on how to think. 
But another prophet I would suggest does, and that's the prophet Jeremiah. Go ahead and look with me at Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is writing a letter almost a hundred years after what we just read in Isaiah. The truth is, like I said, God graciously and miraculously defeated Assyria, sent them home packing, and Judea remained. But not for long. They continued to resist and avoid repentance and walk in the ways of unfaithfulness until God brought in another enemy, Babylon. Babylon sacked Jerusalem enslaved the population and marched them off to Babylon. And Jeremiah here is writing to those who are in exile. And I want you to remember that what we're about to read, he says about a culture that had crushed them, enslaved them, cruelly treated them. And this is what he says. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find its welfare. He says, settle in. Don't rely on a hotel room. This is not going to be a couple of weeks. In fact, in total, Israel was there for 70 years. Most people lived out the rest of their lives in Babylon before returning home. And so he tells them to live in the midst of Babylon. But also implied here in this letter and maintained uh, in this idea of exiles and foreigners, they were to continue to be who they were. They weren't to live as Babylonians, they were to live among the Babylonians. And then on top of that, they were, it says here, to seek the peace of the city. Now here's the thing. Let's lay out a couple of pieces. First, What we see here is not domination, right? He doesn't call for rebellion. He doesn't call for the taking up of arms. He doesn't call for them to overwhelm, destroy, defeat the Babylonians. But he also doesn't call for assimilation. It's not succumb. It's not be like them. It's not worship their gods. It's none of those things. In fact, this is one of the ironies of the exile is God uses it to purge it of their idolatry in probably the greatest capital of idolatry in the whole ancient world. And it is also not separatist, right? He doesn't say, retreat to the wilderness, set up monasteries, escape from the culture that is so that you're not infected by them. See, those are the three temptations that we always have. And by the way, Peter identifies us in this room right now today as exiles. 
not because we're under the thumb of some tyrannical government, but because the kingdoms of earth are not our kingdom. Okay? And those three temptations are always there. And right now, the one that seems to be the most present is the will to dominate, the will to power. But assimilation is just as real. And it's just as dangerous. And the irony is that in this case, I would suggest to you that the will to dominate is assimilation. It's not us holding back the tide. It's us drinking it deep being transformed into its image. But it's also not a call to separation, and I, I want you to hear me. My point in this is not to say get out of politics. My point is not to say stop voting. My point is not to say that the whole world is corrupt, so just keep your hands clean. There's no opportunity here to be Pilate and wash our hands and let the innocent go punished and the unjust go free. But, but the way that God builds the kingdom is in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, but not by them. And it is not somewhere off in the distance where he's building the kingdom on an island and nobody's allowed in, but right in the midst of a world that he's inviting into and encouraging into, proclaiming the coming kingdom and the invitation to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. One of the things that the Jews were to live here and one of the things that we're to do as a church is not just to be a prophetic voice that calls the government to justice, but to be a prophetic witness that lives differently. That's what the church is. It's a community committed to the values of another kingdom. What Jonathan Lehman calls an eschatological embassy if, in other words, an embassy from the future, okay. living under different rules and different guidelines and proclaiming the coming king. But for us to do that, we have to dethrone in our own hearts and in our own churches and demythologize politics, government, and the state. We have to recognize that it's a limited good, one that we should be grateful for and embrace. We have to recognize that it is one that is, in its limitation, needs to be instructed, needs to be guided. This is the reason why the government can't determine values, because it's never made to be a judge of that, okay? And when it becomes that, it becomes inherently dangerous. That doesn't mean it's supposed to make laws with its eyes closed, as if that was even possible. But our witness has to be a witness that isn't reliant upon the state. The reason why this has become so significant to me is because our current model of engagement as Christians, I don't think we can connect to the New Testament. And I don't think it's just because we live in a modern democracy. And I don't think it's just because Christianity has in some cases won and has a history now behind it and not just, not just a minority and oppressed people. Consider Jesus Christ. When Jesus stands before Pilate, does he believe that Pilate or Herod or Rome 
or the rulers of Israel, does he believe they are necessary for the bringing of his kingdom? Is he reliant upon them? No. He is a king. They can recognize it, they cannot recognize it. They can take their rightful place as servants, or they can rebel in a beastly way. But is he afraid of their power? Is he worried about the animosity they present? In Colossians, it says this. It says that in the cross of Christ, he disarmed rulers and authorities and powers and principalities. Now, the truth is, we get that wrong and we think the reason Jesus has triumphed over the powers is because he raised. No, he won in the cross. He triumphed there. He made public spectacle of them. That's what Paul says in Colossians, there. How? Because he revealed them for what they are. Merely humans who could condemn Jesus to death but couldn't keep him dead. Merely humans who can proclaim that they are the operation of justice but are actually the ones on trial. And it was through just the natural and total surrender to those things that Jesus brought the kingdom. And here's the thing. As we'll see in the coming weeks, faithfulness for the church simply means to follow Jesus. And one of the scariest things that's happened in the church is the politicization of Jesus himself. Just like those Jesus Save banners, we've made Jesus himself a banner of our issues, of our mindset, a way to flex our muscles, to create the world in our image. Jesus lived in hostile territory, regularly and consistently opposed. The church has done this in different places in different generations for years and years and years. We have a playbook for this. But even in good times, where the church is regarded and respected, don't be mistaken. Politics is just a limited good. Government can only do so much. We as a church are called to model a better way, first internally in our community and then in our love for neighbors. It's not the will to power. It's the will to love. Let's pray. God, it is my suspicion that this tendency towards coercion exists not just in our voters' booth, but in just the insecurity we feel in being human. And so we pursue the power of status or the power of wealth or these types of things, Lord, and we, we elevate it because that will make us safe, that will make us secure, that will demonstrate whatever. feel like we've forgotten that your strength is perfected in weakness. 
I feel like we've forgotten that that Jesus saves and even Jesus is Lord and even Jesus is King is already true and not something that we need to accomplish. And I know that we are afraid and I know in some places we are angry and I know in other places we're confused and frustrated and I'm so thankful, Lord, for an entire nation of people in, in the midst of all of us who, who really just want to do something, just want to make things better. But I pray, Lord, that your church would be prevalent in broadening out the story of human flourishing, that we would know that government has a part to play, but there's a whole lot of things that it doesn't do and that we can lean into and should lean into those things. We pray for the witness of your church, Lord, that you would make us a people who love our neighbors, who bring about peace, who promote justice, not just by comments on Facebook or by trying to hold government accountable, Lord, but by getting into the work. And I pray, Lord, for that unshakable hope of the kingdom of God that frees us up to serve even those who oppose us. Because at the end of the day, what can they do to us? We know that you are king. Purge this from our own hearts, Lord. Teach us a better way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.